And if you would, turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, you'll find it on page 1177 of the Pew Bible if you want to use that. Page 1177, and it's 1 Timothy chapter 2. Last time uh, we gathered together in 1 Timothy, I tried to address the question, what is Paul concerned about in these verses, verses 1 through 7? My goal was to put these seven verses back into their context, both their historical context, but more importantly, their biblical context. These verses we noted are not, are not proof texts for or against Reformed theology. Rather, when we pay close attention to this letter, to the book of Acts, and really to the whole of the Old Testament, we can identify immediately what is going on here. The issue here is the great issue of the early church and of the New Testament. The question is, is the saving work of the Messiah for the nations or only for the faithful ones in Israel? So, for example, the books of Romans and Galatians are designed around this problem. And the letter to the Ephesians, this church, if you read that letter, also directly addresses this problem. Lastly, and this is really the key, the text itself tells you this. Paul begins by urging the people to pray for secular rulers, and it ends, verse 7, with Paul feeling compelled to swear that the mission to the Gentiles is, after all, a real thing. We also noted that the debate, this debate, was not just theory for Timothy. He was himself half Gentile and had taken the extraordinary and painful step of being circumcised as an adult man in order to allow him greater entry into Jewish communities and to the temple, going into those places with the message of Jesus. The exclamation that Paul makes in verse 7 of her text, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, that statement made to Timothy may indicate that even Timothy had doubts. Maybe after being circumcised and receiving full entry into his mother's culture and people, maybe Paul was a little concerned that Timothy, even Timothy, might wander back towards Judaism without Christ. The question then is, how does Paul seek to remedy all this? You've got people like Timothy who are sincere but may be questioning the mission to the Gentiles. Then you have the false elders that we've met who, according to chapter 1, want to be called rabbi and are teaching a form of Jewish mysticism. How can Paul get all these people back on the right track? How can the church start looking outward again and stop this navel-gazing? The answer to that question is these seven verses. The church is to resume public prayers for their secular leaders and for all the nations. They must embrace the vision given to Abraham that all nations would be blessed in him. 
They must be obedient to the prophecies of Isaiah that God would gather the nations under the banner of the Messiah. These were not popular ideas at the time, but they are truths that Paul wants front and center in the church. And so, as we saw last time, prayers, supplications, intercessions, and even thanksgivings are to be made for all people and all kinds of people. The church, then, is to stop excluding certain classes or races from their prayers. God desires all kinds of people to be saved, and he desires all peoples to be saved, that is, all races, all nations. In their worship, they must realign themselves again to God's priorities, not their prejudices. That is also why we are here this morning, why we are opening God's word. All week, we have been gripped by things we think are really important. Some might be in line with God's plan, but some are not. We need a realignment. So today, let's listen carefully to the reasons Paul gives why urgent prayer for the nations is to be our priority. Will you please stand then as I read to you 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. 1st of all, or a first priority, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is God's word. Let's now ask his blessing on it. Father, we do indeed need each day and each moment to be redirected and restored by your word. We need our foolishness and our fears taken away, and we need your word to take their place. And so we pray this morning as we study your word that you would guide and direct us, and that together we would be edified and Christ would be glorified. Do these things then, Father, for the sake of your Son and out of your great love for us, For we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If we're being honest this morning, and hopefully we are, uh, sometimes we romanticize the early church. Sometimes we romanticize the early church. I've done that. We like to imagine that churches founded directly by Paul and Peter, must have been pure, special. Maybe we shake our heads a little at the current church and wonder how we could have gotten so far off track. In general, we tend to view things up close with cynicism, don't we? And things at a distance with nostalgia. Those were the good old days, we say. 
Unfortunately, some churches even adopt uh, names that reflect this nostalgia. I remember seeing years ago a sign on a church bus, and the name of the church was, quote, the church in Acts, end quote. I desperately wanted to ask the driver if this meant that his church had people sleeping with their stepmother, as in 1 Corinthians, or members dying on the floor of the church in judgment, like Ananias and Sapphira, or people denying the gospel in favor of strict Torah interpretation, as in Galatians. I decided it was best not to ask, both for him and for me. You see the problem The problem with this present cynicism and this past idealism is that it does not reflect the text of the New Testament. Paul's letters, along with the book of Acts, reveal a church that was extremely troubled and constantly attacked, very much besieged. And yet it was also a dynamic church that was growing and getting a lot of things right by the grace of God. And this is such a gift to us, isn't it? Instead of giving us an impossibly perfect church, which we could never relate to, God has given us a portrait that is useful and timeless. As with the great stories of the Old Testament, the lives of David or Abraham, we get to see up close the failures and the successes, the victories and the losses. All the while, we are encouraged to trust God in our moment while watching out for the same old pitfalls that stumbled everyone from Adam to Ananias. All this brings us then to the bustling port city of Ephesus, home to one of the greatest pagan temples in the world and home to a growing church founded by Paul three or to five years earlier. The problem the congregation is facing is both theological and practical, just like the problems we face today. Theologically, the question was, how does the Messiah's death impact the mission of God's people? Since the Messiah has now renewed Israel and rebuilt Israel through his 12 apostles, the new 12 tribes, What are the boundaries of this new Israel? On a more practical level, the congregation is struggling just as we are this morning with our identity. Who are we called to be in a big, hostile, pagan culture where everything we say, and this is especially true today, everything we say is misunderstood, and where no one knows anything about us, except blurbs they have gotten from those who hate us. How can we separate from that culture and protect our kids and love the people in that culture? That was the practical problem. So in the swirl of this theological dilemma and this personal dilemma, the church in Ephesus had been led astray by false elders who taught a mystic form of Judaism, a kind of secretive religion open only to initiates and deep thinkers. As we saw last time, Paul calls for the rejection of this false Jewish mysticism and the reestablishing of thorough prayer in worship, prayer for the nations and prayer for all authorities. 
The church is to return to earth, return to its concern for their community, and return to the universal call of the gospel. Today, Paul offers, and this is where I want us to focus, three compelling reasons for this return, what he wants to see happen to correct these problems in the church. And so let's look at those three reasons together. First, Paul says, we are to pray for our nation and the world so that we, our children, our church, and our neighbors may enjoy peace and stability. Look at verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, first of all, or a first priority, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that, in Greek here, very strong, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Throughout the Bible, we are encouraged to pray for our leaders because we understand that stability and peace is best for everyone. We only need to watch the news coming out of the Ukraine or the ongoing refugee crisis in the Middle East to understand the chaos and trauma that can overwhelm a nation when stability is lost. The Bible is fully aware of this reality, and so prayer for peace and stability is richly biblical and part of our ancient heritage as Christians. This perspective is not new to the New Testament. Jeremiah famously told the exiled Israelites, speaking as the voice of God, he said, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Or we could turn to Ezra 6, verse 10, where the Jews are restored to the promised land by the pagan king Cyrus, who funds their return, funds the rebuilding of the temple, and asks them, when you're there, pray for me and for my sons. Going even further back into the Old Testament, we see foreign kings coming and seeking out the blessing of Abraham and Abraham giving that blessing and praying for them. This may or may not have led to their conversion, but it certainly helped them to live at peace with each other. Now, if you're tempted to say this morning, that was all fine and good back then, but I really, really, really don't like my leaders. Well, please pause and recall that Nero, yes, that Nero, is emperor as Paul writes this. None of our presidents, however much you may hate whichever one, none of them have reached Nero's level of cruelty. So this was not an easy thing for Paul to write or for this church to practice. In fact, listen for a moment to the apologist, the Christian apologist Tertullian, an ancient man. He's writing not long after this letter was written. And listen to what he describes in his apology. He writes of the church's prayer life this way. With our hands, he says, stretched out and up to God, in pure hands for the empire, praying for the Roman Empire, he says, rend us with your iron claws, hang us up on crosses, wrap us in flames, 
Take our heads from us with a sword. Let loose the wild beasts on us. The very attitude, the very attitude of a Christian praying is one of preparation for all punishment. The image is striking. Using language from this chapter, these verses, Tertullian pictures the church raising holy hands on behalf of the very empire that is tearing them to pieces. The church father, Chrysostom, urges the same. He notes that it is very difficult to hate those who you are praying for, and it's very difficult for them to keep hating you when you are praying for them. And the Puritan Scotsman and my personal spiritual guide, Samuel Rutherford, he says it simply and powerfully when he writes these words. I have been helped, he said. I've been helped by praying for others. For by making an errand to God for them, I've gotten something for myself. We have a long and emphatic history of prayer for our enemies, our persecutors, and our nation. Because we live in the USA, we haven't had to worry about this as much. But it's time to dust off these deep traditions and recover this biblical practice. Paul does, though, give an important reminder to go with these prayers. These prayers for peace are for a purpose. He writes in verse 2, Do this so that you may live peacefully and quietly. But how? in all godliness and dignity. This can be translated, often is, in the Greek Old Testament, reverence and dignity. Godliness or reverence means a life that is fully and openly devoted to God. The purpose of seeking peace is not to just have peace and quiet so we can sort of kick back and be at peace. Rather, we want stability because stability provides good things for our neighbors who we love, And it provides a context for us to live godly lives. To put it another way, stable societies help promote missions. So, for example, look at our own nation. Because our nation has enjoyed long periods of wealth and stability, we have the capital to send missionaries across the world and to aid hurting people everywhere. This stability has also allowed us to build buildings, schools, seminaries, and other institutions. So we pray for peace to the end that we might live quietly, but not idly. Rather, we aspire to godliness for the sake of the world. Paul is very concerned in this letter and throughout his writings that the church be different not in a judgmental or exclusive way, but in an attractive way. In fact, Paul uses these same ideas when he, along with Timothy, wrote to the church in Thessalonica. He and Timothy, writing together, writing in that letter, they urged that church to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Behind all of this teaching about praying for peace and living godly lives, behind all of it, and I think lighting it all up with glory and power, is the sober reminder that the one writing this is the Apostle Paul. 
Paul has been, as he writes this, Paul has been arrested multiple times. He's been humiliated, he's been stripped, he's been beaten, and he's been stoned, and he will soon face unlawful public execution by the state. Right before his execution, Paul writes 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in this life will be persecuted. Paul then knew, you see, Paul knew what he was asking for when he called the church to this kind of ministry of prayer. The authorities had humiliated him many times in the past. And yet with eyes wide open, he calls on the church to pray. If you've been with us for a number of years, uh, you've probably listened as the pastors and elders of our church moved very quietly from praying for President Trump to now praying publicly for President Biden. Maybe that transition happened and you didn't even really notice it, which actually is probably a good thing. But I think it's a profound transition that we made, especially because it happened so quietly and so naturally. In fact, in our current climate, churches like ours may be the only place left, the only place left where something like that can even happen. Virtually every other institution, every business, every streaming platform, every uh, part of our society has identified itself with one person or the other completely and totally. Prayer, prayer for the other side, real sincere prayer, is almost unimaginable. And that has left us as a church in this incredibly beautiful moment, being the last place, the only place maybe in America, along with other churches like us, where both presidents are sincerely prayed for, even when they're strongly disagreed with. If that is a habit you have lost, if that is something you do hear only on Sunday, when Pastor Trescar does the pastoral prayer, I would urge you to reconsider. Yes, of course, vote your conscience. But don't stop there. Pray for our governor. Pray for our president and vice president. Pray for all our leaders and all those in authority. Don't let our criticisms ever be louder than our prayers on their behalf. This is our ancient faith. This is godliness. So first, we should pray this way for peace and stability that we might be godly. Second notice in verses 3 and 4, we should pray this way and for all people because this aligns with God's own desires for the nations. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So Paul begins by saying that prayer for all people is good and it is pleasing to God. The problem with that is that in our English language, let's be honest, good has been drained of all its meaning. We throw that word around so much, it's just sort of a tattered old thing. But in the Bible, things that are good are things that align with the desires and character and will of God. That's what's being said here. In English, I prefer to use the word, especially when I'm teaching, I'll use the word lovely. Lovely things or good things are things aligned with God. 
Our speech, for example, we're told, is to be good or to be lovely. We're to meditate on things that are lovely or good. And so, for instance, in Genesis, have you ever noticed how God creates thing after thing and he keeps saying, and it was good. The original creation was altogether lovely because it was altogether in conformity to God. It was good. Paul then is saying here to this church that as God's new creation, they are to be lovely, they are to be good. And loveliness means aligning themselves with God's original purposes. Specifically here, God desires the nations, all peoples, to come to him. And so the church cannot exclude anyone, even emperors, from their prayer life. God made all things and all people. God cares for all people, including those outside of the faith community. As Jesus reminded his disciples, God makes his son to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. And so loveliness, conformity to God's purposes and desires, will mean loving and praying for the world. This was a very difficult issue for the Ephesian church, and really for all churches of the New Testament. The Messiah's appearance was universally believed, at that time, universally believed, to be an act of restoration for believing, for watching and waiting Israel, and a moment of utter judgment for everyone else. The Ephesian church has wandered into this kind of thinking, but this is not God's good desire. As we'll see in a moment, God is the God of all people, and his good design is clearly seen in his creation. Before we move on, let me just take a moment to address how we should interpret this will of God. Some people teach that God wants everyone to be saved in exactly the same way. In other words, some will say that God has already cast his vote, as it were, for you, and that you then give the deciding vote. Now, if you already believe that, it's easy to read this verse out of context and simply see your own view reflected back to you. But I have to disagree, and here's why. First, in context... The message here is not that God loves every human in exactly the same way and ultimately and decisively wills each person to be saved. God has constructed a place called hell, and this was not an accident. In that sense, God has never willed fully the salvation of every person who ever lived. The whole context here in verses 2 and 7, you see it especially, is the Gentiles, the nations. So I have to agree with older commentators like Augustine and Calvin and newer commentators like George Knight and others who reading in this context say that the all men, all peoples, literally in Greek, here it is shorthand for the nations or all kinds of people. That's the context. Second, there are numerous other places in the New Testament where these exact terms, literally these exact terms in Greek, are used, and they clearly cannot mean every person who's ever lived. Paul, for example, is told with these same words that he will bear witness to all peoples or all men. This again meant the nations, not literally every person who ever lived. Paul never made it outside of the Mediterranean world, and God knew that in advance. 
Jesus is often called also the Savior of the world. But there, too, we don't mean every person that will ever live, because many will not be saved, as we know. Jesus doesn't, in the end, save the entire world, if you mean by world, every single person who ever lived. All mankind, or all peoples, was a way of saying in Paul's day, the nations, the Gentile world, the big picture, spread to the four corners of the earth, and the idea that Jesus would save millions of humans and establish a new heavens and earth, and there are many other examples of this. Third, and lastly, if you insist on reading 1 Timothy 2 out of that context and reading it in a kind of simple, immediately literal way, you must also read Romans 9, Ephesians 1, John 17, and a host of other passages in that same way. As we studied last Sunday evening, glad that some of you joined us for that study, this approach, this way of studying scripture simply does not work and is not the method used by the church historically or the apostles. Therefore, the clearest interpretation, the one the text itself teaches, and the one that history suggests, is that Paul is simply saying here all kinds of people. All nations are included in God's saving desires. So when we put this verse back into context, it lights up again with meaning for this church, not just for us, but for this church, the original audience. Standing on the threshold of the New Testament era, they were asking, what are the boundaries of this new work of the Messiah? What and who will he renew? Paul calls them then to look to the very edges God always had in view, always had in view, the undoing of Adam's sin. God always planned to constitute a new humanity in his son. And so Abraham was told that he would be a blessing to all the nations. Ruth was a Moabite who brought us the line of David. Moses was in an interracial marriage with an Egyptian priest's daughter. Joseph was also in an interracial marriage. And all along, the prophets, especially Isaiah, prophesied of the Messiah's global impact. Therefore, to be globally minded in our prayers is to align ourselves with God's purposes in the world. This is why we need missionary reports, why we need ways to pray and learn about what God is doing around the world. But it is also how we should approach our neighbors and our friends. Yes, I know, just full disclosure here, I know that more and more our neighbors, our friends and family won't even talk to us about God. But as one of my friends reminds me every time, with his emails, because this is at the bottom of every one of his emails. Some of you have seen it. He has this quote. Rich Wilson has this quote. Men may spurn our appeals. They may reject our message. They may oppose our arguments. They may despise our persons, but they are helpless against our prayers. As a pastor, I can almost feel the pain of Paul in these verses Paul is the founding pastor of this church, and yet they have unaligned themselves with Paul's own calling. You feel the shock of it, don't you, in the last verse where Paul says, I'm not lying. 
I'm telling the truth, a preacher of truth to the nations. Paul could so easily have made this letter very personal. He could have made it all about his ministry. How dare they turn away from him and his ministry to the nations? How dare they question his calling? But instead, he made it about God's global ambitions. God the Father desires the nations for his Son. I hope and I think that our own church wonderfully reflects this reality. As I wrote this sermon, I thought what a joy it would be, sometimes this occurs to me, to jump into a time machine. Have you ever wanted to do this? And I'd love to go back in time to the Ephesian church and take them a picture of Grace Presbyterian Church. We can only imagine the shock they would feel to look out, as I do, and see so many nations represented. As a church, we do our service in English because that's the language that sort of unites us. We know it. But we speak and we witness in French, Chinese, Arabic, and especially in Spanish. We exist because God the Father desires to save all the nations and to bring them as a bridal gift to his beloved Son. Let us never stop aligning ourselves with that holy desire. Godliness is loveliness, and global prayer is lovely. So the reasons for public global prayer are first, it leads to peace, and it's, the best, it's in the best interests of everyone, our neighbors and us. Second, it is lovely because God desires this for his son. God wishes to restore the nations, not just Israel or not just one racial or national group. Lastly and thirdly, global prayer in worship is necessary for the very reason that there is no other way of salvation. Look at verses 5 and 6. Paul says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Paul begins by reminding this mostly Jewish congregation of the Old Testament's greatest statement of faith, the Shema. This is Deuteronomy 6.4, and the greatest testimony you'll hear from really any Jewish person down to this day. Hear, O Israel, the Yahweh our God, the Yahweh is one. That may sound simple enough to us today, but it was a radical statement of faith at the time. No one outside the Jews believed this. Everyone had their own race, everyone had their own culture, and everyone had their own gods. And the Romans and the Greeks... Much like our society, they were pluralists, and that they encouraged everyone to keep their culture and to keep their local gods. Paul here, I think, is trying to jog the memory of this church to remind them of what we believe, as if to say to them, brothers and sisters, we know that there is no other God for the world to know. There is only one true God. Those other cultures though they feel uncomfortable to us and distant to the church, are really part of one humanity under one God. Now, it can be dangerous to say this if it's twisted or said improperly, so please make sure you take what I'm about to say as intended. We need 
and they, the Ephesian church, needed to remember that there is a very real sense, a very real sense, in which all people are the children of God. Yes, through Christ, don't misunderstand, through Christ, believers have become heirs of heaven and have been adopted into God's family in a way that is unique to Christians. However, God is not just our local, personal deity. Here is how Paul put it as he stood in Athens at the center of the intellectual world in Acts chapter 17. Paul writes, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. As there is one God and one God only, so there is also one mediator There is only one man who can bridge the gap between God and us. The church father Anselm reminds us that Jesus, quote, paid a debt that only man could owe and only God could pay. Paid a debt that only a man could owe and only God could pay. In other words, Jesus had to be human so that he could bear our guilt. You can't put human guilt on a non-human God. No angel could justly bear human sin or represent humanity. And that is why in this passage, Paul emphasizes Jesus' humanity. He writes in the text, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. The sacrifice for sin had to be united to mankind in order to represent mankind on the cross. And yet, as Anselm put it, Jesus also had to be God so that he could bear it, survive it, absorb it. It was a debt only man could owe and only God could pay. As John Stott notes, this is Christianity at its most exclusive and its most inclusive you see, it's just because, it's just because there, are, there is, in Jesus' words, no other way of salvation that we must be utterly inclusive in our message. Our message, on the one hand, is utterly exclusive. No way but Christ. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Those are Christ's words of exclusion. And yet this exclusive message must be utterly inclusive. One savior for one world. Today, Americans look back with joy and shame at some of our actions during World War II. There's so much to be proud of. Both my grandfathers fought in World War II. Many of yours did as well. We can think of D-Day. We can think of so many other moments of immense courage and sacrifice. It's a wonderful chapter in the history of our nation. But there were also some clear mistakes. One of them, I think recognized by everyone today, is that the United States for a time refused to allow Jewish refugees into the country. I don't know the reasons for all of that, 
But in retrospect, we all wish that we would have realized the seriousness of their plight, that they literally had nowhere to go. But can't you see that is also the situation for our whole world? All our neighbors, all the communities that make up South Jersey, they have a God, only one God. They may not recognize him, but he is their father and their maker. As Paul says, they are his offspring. As I've mentioned to you before, you really shouldn't approach people and ask them if they would like to have a relationship with God. I know that's well-intended, but it's inaccurate and maybe even a little offensive because they already have a relationship with God. That's actually the problem. They're under his judgment as his creation and his offspring and in rebellion against him because there's only one God. Monotheism, as Robert Yarbrough points out, is the foundation of world missions. Monotheism is the foundation of world missions. We do missions because we can't leave people worshiping their local deities. Because we're already related to God and we're at war with him, we therefore desperately need reconciliation. And there's only one way back to him. There then is literally nowhere else for anyone to go because there's only one man who could fix this and did fix this. Therefore, our prayers and our witness must embrace every community without exception. If you are exclusive this morning, and I hope that you are in this sense, if you believe with me that Jesus is the only way to God, if you believe that, and you better, then how does that really fuel your life of prayer and witness? It should add a sort of beautiful desperation to our lives, shouldn't it? You see, you can't leave, you cannot leave your neighbor at a distance. You cannot leave him or her to their own personal truth. No, you must love them and try to draw them into this faith community. You must hold that person close in your prayers and in your heart because there is nowhere else. There is nowhere else for them to go but to God through Christ and into a Bible-believing church. There is nothing else for them. This, then, is the problem in Ephesus. Do you see it? Tribalism, fueled by bad traditions, has undermined the faith and witness of the church. And it was a tragedy, wasn't it, that a church like Ephesus, founded in the fires of missionary zeal, a church founded by the greatest missionary ever, has begun to turn away from the world. And it would be a tragedy today if we fail to pray for all the people, for all of our community, and for all the world. But what can help us do this? What can help us keep this up, and as a church, and as families, as individuals, to maintain this mindset of prayer and longing for all people? Above all else, and I think this is what Paul does here, what will help us, what will help you, is to have rich views of Christ. Rich views of Christ. We are the best at global prayer when we remember why it matters. It matters because Jesus is too lovely, too glorious, and too important 
not to receive all the nations as his inheritance. And that was Isaiah's message that you heard read earlier. To limit or to try to narrow the work of the gospel is to think too little of our dear Jesus. When instead we are overcome with his goodness and especially with the dimensions of his sacrifice, we are instantly propelled outward to a world that he deserves to fill. We become anxious that every person, every group of people come to praise him. So the salvation that has come in Christ must walk the whole length and breadth of this planet. As one author famously put it, Cornelius Van Til, the great apologist, he says, Jesus walks a cosmic road far as the curse is found. He must undo all the sin and all that sin has done. Or as C.S. Lewis, a very different writer, put it, we must understand that Christ's grace will achieve heaven one day and that once arrived, heaven will work backwards, turning even past agonies into glory. What Van Til and Lewis are saying is that every area of life, Van Til, and every part of history, Lewis, is for the glory of our lovely Christ. And the dimensions of Christ's victory are revealed in the nations who are even now streaming into his kingdom. It was never meant to be a salvation for just this or that demographic. It is a salvation far greater than we have imagined. And so this Christmas, and I know it's far away at the moment, but this Christmas we'll sing. And when we sing, I want you to remember this sermon when we sing these words. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. And then the hymn goes on to say, doesn't it? He makes his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the loveliness of Christ, for the power of his death, for the power of the Holy Spirit, which he has poured out upon his church. And now as we see it every day, the power of global prayer, which is pushing the church forward in every country of the world. How we thank you that even as we gather this morning, we are worshiping in our minds in many different languages because you've gathered so many people from so many cultures in this place. And we know that in that we are not unique for the church is like this all over the world. Because this is a salvation so great that it is a message for all the world. And no one can be left in the darkness of their own gods, in the love of their own self. So give us hearts for those around us. And may our love for them be reflected in our prayers. For we pray and ask it for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.